looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today we're going to be talking about the 49ers 22-17 loss at Minnesota on Monday Night Football. We're going to be going over game stats Big points in the game where San Francisco could have done something different, made a play that would have affected the outcome. We're going to talk about the pass defense that got shredded, the run defense that wasn't much better, the running game, which was non-existent for the 49ers, and how target allocation on offense needs to change. In the plus section, I'm going to be talking about asshole sports parents. Those of us that have had kids, we've all dealt with them, and I did this past weekend. I want to share my experience. Loki episode three on Disney Plus came out last Thursday. I have some thoughts there. And I want to go over five games from this previous uh, NFL weekend. Bears, Raiders, Pats, Bills, Browns, Colts, Ravens, Lions, Chiefs, Chargers, and talk about the weekly uh, hyperbolic nature of the NFL. But like always, it starts with the Niners. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. Not good to drop another game, this time again on the road, but this time against an NFC conference foe coming off of the last second lost at Cleveland. The Niners again had a chance twice to either take the lead or win the game against the Vikings, but come up short 22 to 15. Let's briefly touch upon stats Total yardage, Minnesota 452, the Niners 325, the, the Vikings had five more first downs, 10 more minutes of time of possession, only committed one turnover versus San Francisco's three. Brock Purdy, 21 of 30, 272 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions, sacked one time. Kirk Cousins, 35 of 45, 378 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, no sacks, and generally had his way with the 49ers defense. Running the ball, Christian McCaffrey healthy enough to play. 15 rushes for 45 yards and a touchdown. Second leading rusher, Brock Purdy, 5 for 19 yards. We're going to be talking more about that later. As a team, the 49ers ran it 22 times for 65 yards and one score. For the Vikings, Alexander Madison, 8 for 39. Cam Akers, 10 for 31. As a team, 21 for 74 yards. Receiving... Kittle, 5 for 78. Ayuk, 5 for 57. Jennings, 5 for 54. McCaffrey, 3 for 51. For the Vikings, Jordan Addison had a huge game stepping up for the injured Justin Jefferson, 7 for 123 and 2 touchdowns. TJ Hawkinson, 11 for 86 yards. And additional stats or housekeeping analytical items, pro football focus ratings and snap counts were released earlier today. So I'm going to include them on this podcast. Top five players on offense for the 49ers, George Kittle with an 89.7, Russ Dwelly an 86.6, although based on three snaps, Juwan Jennings 78.2, Aaron Banks 75.6, Jalen Moore 
74.2. So what's interesting here, so Jennings um, had a good number of snaps. We're going to take that into account and was rated relatively highly as that number two receiver. And the left-hand side of the line, which we thought would be an issue with Trent Williams out, how would Jalen Moore and Aaron Banks communicate against a team that brings the blitz quite a bit? Well, Banks and Moore are among the top five highest-rated 49ers. We're going to get into more on Jalen Moore in a bit. On defense, Fred Warner, 85.4. Talanoa Hufunga, 74.7. Nick Bosa, 71.8. Oren Burks at linebacker, 69.6. And Randy Gregory, defensive end, 68.2. Some select snap counts that I think you'll be interested in. Only 53 total offensive snaps that really was the Vikings owning the time of possession battle, limiting possessions for the 49ers. Of 53 total snaps, Christian McCaffrey played, you guessed it, 53. Coming off of a slight oblique tear, which none of us are doctors, and even if we are looking up what an oblique tear is um, online, it's still a strain. Anytime you strain anything or sprain anything, like your ankle, you are tearing the fibers. So a sprain or a strain of the oblique muscle is a tear, obviously well enough to play, should heal on its own, and hopefully getting through the Bengal game coming up healthy. Then there's a bye week. Hopefully he'll be 100% for Jacksonville coming off the bye. Eli Mitchell, four snaps. No other running back other than Kyle Juszczyk got a snap. I have a lot to say about that coming up. George Kittle, 51 of 53 snaps, got banged up a couple times during the game. Charlie Warner, 21 snaps. Again, is that he's really embedded as the number two tight end, which is such a shame because he offers nothing in the pass. What has Ross Dwelly done to you, Kyle Shanahan, that you he had a reception and he was one of the five highest rated players based on only three snaps. So he had one reception out of three snaps that he played, which is a pretty high percentage. But what has he done, Kyle, that you are you refuse to make <clears throat> Ross Dwelly receiving threat or option at the tight end position? Because it's certainly not going to be Braden Willis. You're not going to trust a rookie, and Cam Latou is on IR um, with a meniscus issue in his knee. So these are your four tight ends, unless there's an injury and you, and you, you know, bring someone else in. You're not using anyone but Kittle, and you're only using Werner in the pa- in the pass game for blocking. It's wildly limiting your offense. It really, really is. I mentioned Javon Jennings earlier, 39 of the 53 snaps. So he was like the clear-cut number two receiver, at least snap-wise. Ray Ray McLeod, 19 snaps. Chris Connolly, one snap. They brought him up from the practice squad, his second elevation. You're allowed to elevate players three times from the practice squad before you have to make the decision of keeping him on your active roster, or I'm not sure if it's after the third activation you have to release that player or he goes back to the practice squad knowing if he plays again for you, it has to be an active roster spot. But I thought he could have added something. Big, fast, veteran receiver. Would have been in a different mold than a Ray Ray McLeod, right? Because he's more of like the gadget Debo, <clears throat> excuse me, Debo Samuel type role. One snap. I didn't even realize he got on the field, so I wasn't surprised that it was one, but I I'm, should have been observant enough to realize that he got on the field at least once. More on that in a little bit. Defensive snaps, 70 overall. Bosa played 64. Too high. Talking about defensive ends, Cleland Farrell, 40. Randy Gregory, 21. Drake Jackson, 15. So again, game two, 
Randy Gregory's only been here for what, two and a half weeks? He's out snapping Drake Jackson. Drake Jackson was the heir apparent defensive end on the other side of Nick, Nick Bosa. And it is not panning out that way. The amount that the, the big deal that they made about Drake Jackson putting on good weight, playing at about 270, being able to withstand the rigors of an NFL season, improving his conditioning. If we're going to say, because he's a second-year player and at this point in his career, Cleveland Farrell, what, fifth-year player, sixth-year player, and Randy Gregory, who's, I think, 30 years old, so he's been in the league for seven, eight years, are more polished than he is at this point, fine. But Drake Jackson, expecting a bit more. He had a great first week, right? Three sacks, two or three sacks at Pittsburgh, nothing since. Now, cornerbacks, Here's this is interesting. So obviously we know that Isaiah Oliver, for good, for better or for worse, is locked in as the nickel corner. Maybe that'll change when Samuel Womack comes off of IR. But during this game, no other cornerback got a snap. It was Oliver, Charvarius Ward, and Diamador Lenore. Nobody else. And as far as safeties goes, I don't even think, I'm not sure if anyone got in other than uh, Gibson and Ufunga. I don't know if Jair Brown saw the field, and I, I don't think George Odom did other than special teams. Which makes sense to a certain degree because this is a team without Justin Jefferson. So there might not have been a need for dime personnel. So four, four corners, two safeties, maybe one linebacker and four defensive linemen. But Kirk Cousins ripped you up. Kirk Cousins went for 378 yards. I'm not going to say another cornerback on the field would have helped the pass defense. But I could sure as hell say it wouldn't have made it any worse. Cousins completed 78% of his passes for almost 380. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more. Let's just start off how the game started, and it felt good. First drive, Charvarius Ward intercepts Kirk Cousins, wrestling the ball away from Jordan Addison inside Viking territory. Niners are starting out well. Purdy's moving it. McCaffrey runs off the left side, fumbles. Wore gloves after that. So McCaffrey's fumbled twice this year. It's not wildly egregious, but if Shanahan is not going to play favorites, McCaffrey's got to sit some. I'm just, I'm just saying it straight up from Kyle Shanahan's standpoint. If he doesn't trust you, then you have to sit. So I would want to see by that fair is fair logic, Mitchell or Mason get more carries. Remember, this isn't the first time he's fumbled. This isn't the first time he's fumbled in scoring Range. Remember against the Giants on Thursday night, the Niners got a really weird fumble recovery along the sidelines where the ball was bouncing around 49er players before they recovered it. McCaffrey gets it down to the one, has the ball wrestled away as he's on top of a Giants player, turnover on down. Same here. This cost the Niners maybe six, maybe seven, maybe three, although Moody did miss his first field goal coming off of the miss against the Browns. Can't have that. And I'm not saying Eli Mitchell would have done any better. Eli Mitchell has never fumbled in his NFL career, but it also helps when you're not on the field a whole lot because of injury. Jordan Mason fumbled once in preseason. Shanahan, get over it. Get over it. I want to see other running backs on the field. I don't care if they're not as dangerous or as dynamic. Gotta get the carries above 30 or 35. That is your brand of football. Only, what, 20, 22 carries all game for 65 yards? A shade under three yards a carry? Not going to cut it. And listen, McCaffrey looked healthy. 
looked like the, the oblique strainer tear wasn't bothering him. That's fine. But he coughed it up again. He did score the Niners only two touchdowns. I'm not taking it away. And I'm not saying bench McCaffrey and put Eli Mitchell or Jordan Mason in. Everybody understand me. I want to see a slightly more equitable split between McCaffrey's touches, not even time on the field, but uh, carries, not even touches overall, because he's going to have the most receptions out of any running back on the team, and that's fine. But I want to see other running backs being brought in to start pounding the defense. Eli Mitchell may not be a hammer, but Jordan Mason is. If you want to activate Ty Davis Price and sit Mitchell one game and you have two bigger backs that you can pound at a defense, let's try it. McCaffrey's a good hard runner. I'm not taking anything away. Don't misunderstand. But there is something to be said for attempting to wear a team down. Not when you're up. Because even when you're up, you don't take McCaffrey out. But when the game's close, when the game is close, what was the issue, honestly, um, running the ball? We're going to get into that a little bit more. I'm just on this whole snap count thing with McCaffrey not missing a snap. I Fumbling on the first drive, and then the Vikings obviously cashing that in with a touchdown. Looked to be a good start. Didn't wind up, and this game just felt aggravating from the get-go. And continued the entire way. The biggest thing to talk about. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Because all of you guys and gals are smart. You get it. The end of the half. Blitz by Steve Wilkes. Let's set the stage again. Screaming at my TV. Because I saw it coming. So did Cousins. So did the Vikings head coach. Offensive step. So did Jordan Addison. Who's the one that made the touchdown. Here, situational football. Everybody needs to be aware of situational football and risk and reward. Third down and six, Vikings were what? Near their own 40-yard line. 17 seconds to go, Vikings had no timeouts. Unless the Vikings complete two sideline passes, they are not going to get into nearly good enough shape for a realistic field goal attempt by Joseph. Yeah, could they get it maybe down to the 49 or 40, kick a 58-yarder? Sure, that's 20 yards that they would need. A completion and a spike, and, and if it's in the field to play, it's just one play. But here's the key. Third down. Third down, what's the reward of sending a blitz? What's the reward? All right, maybe you get a sack. Maybe you get a strip sack fumble in in. Viking territory, you can kick a field goal. There's only 17 seconds left. And the, the third one is force a punt. But you could do that playing coverage. So it's really, you want an interception or some sort of a strip sack. Because if it's just a normal sack, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter. The, the half's going to run out. That's the reward. What's the risk? What you saw happen. Now, that was a ridiculous situation because Charvarius Ward undercut Jordan Addison. The ball actually went through his hands into Jordan Addison's hands, and Ward was trying to wrestle it away. And this time, Addison wins the wrestling match and scores a touchdown. He blitzed seven. There were three in coverage and a safety who was shading more to the left. Couldn't get over there in time to the right to help Charvarius Ward out. And it's a touchdown with six seconds left in the half. Two things. It starts with, with Steve Wilkes, and I think Shanahan, there's going to be discussions this week about that. 
And even Nick Bosa had something to say about that after the game. With 17 seconds left, Vikings no timeouts. They're in their own territory. The worst thing that can happen should be a field goal. That is the worst thing that should happen as a D coordinator. Even if you're playing three deep and you give them the underneath, it's probably just going to be one pass by the time they catch it and run up to the line and spike it, they probably aren't even going to get a field goal off. It's probably going to be a Hail Mary type situation. But no, they send six or seven, have man, have, have a zone coverage, I don't know if it was zone or man behind it, and one safety. Cousins is too good of a quarterback. He recognizes it. He gives his receiver a chance because in his mind, it's like, shit, there's only 17 seconds left. If I get picked, it's like a punt. The Niners aren't going to have any time to do anything. They're going to, if, if he had intercepted it, it would have been with like 12 seconds left. What are the Niners going to do? Assuming Ward doesn't have some huge return and he would have been tackled. Stupid play coverage or the other thing that we all know is knock the goddamn ball down. Like on a Hail Mary. Hail Mary situational awareness is this is the last play of the game. They can only beat us if they win. Don't try to catch the ball and be a glory hog stat patter. Knock it down to win the game. Same thing. The worst thing that probably could happen was Charverius Ward getting that first interception in a wrestling match because it made him think, oh, I'm going to get a second the same way. And he undercut it. But it did go through his hands. Just knock it down. You know it's third and six. You know it's third and six. Knock it down, force the Vikings to punt, and you get out of there 10-7. A lot of blame to go around. And good for Jordan Addison. He made a really good play and kept his footing as he was fighting with Charvarius Ward to score a touchdown to make it a two-possession lead going into the half. This game feels so much different 10-7. If Moody had made that 40-yard field goal in what was it, the first or second quarter, it could have been 10-10 at the half. I would have been happy with 10-7. This is another stupid play where you're not being aggressive, Wilkes. You're being reckless. And it's usually Shanahan that's like that way. Offensively. Not, not today offensive. Not yesterday offensively. Not at all. But it was Wilkes. And he has to have that reputation for wanting to blitz a lot. Didn't work. Didn't work. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. Run defense. The Niners are still a top three run defense. They're giving up under 80 yards a game. Where was it in the first half? I said last podcast, the Vikings are averaging 70 yards rushing a game or 74, whatever it was. No, 70, because they only, they ran for 74 yesterday. Like, I don't want to see the Vikings have half of that in the first quarter. And they did. They had more. They had more. They ran it 21 times, 74 yards. Most of those runs and meaningful runs came in the first half. They ran it some in the second half. I think Madison might have gone out. He might have gotten dinged up, which is why he only had eight carries. He averaged basically five yards a carry. Cam Akers came in. He got 10 rushes for 31 yards, averaging obviously three yards a carry. But they couldn't stop the run in the first half when it mattered. And again, this is a team that you know there's no Justin Jefferson that you would think, okay, they can't run the ball, but maybe they'll try to be a bit more balanced because they're missing their number one offensive weapon. There's no balance. They threw it 45 times. Cousins completed 35 of them. 45 passes, 21 runs. The Niners were 30 passes, 22 runs. A little bit more balanced, but then again, they had less possessions because of the Vikings winning the time of possession battle. Run defense got better in the second half, but here's the reason why. The Vikings realized, shit, 
We don't need to run the ball. We can pass it all over this team. Cousins went nuts. He should not have this kind of passing game with Justin Jefferson. The fact that he had it without Jefferson is a wild indictment on Steve Wilkes, the personnel, the scheme, maybe both, one or the other, I'm not sure. And yes, there was a fluky 60-yard play at the end of the half that you know bumps Cousins up to 378 minus, and otherwise he'd be around 320. So what? What did I say last podcast for those of you who were listening? Kirk Cousins is going to have his 300 empty yards because Kirk Cousins is a good quarterback. Just keep him out of the end zone. Don't let them score. His first touchdown to Addison was a really well-designed route. Greenlaw didn't get enough depth, get enough depth on his drop, and Cousins dropped it in there for a touchdown. Nicely done. The one at the end of the half was a fluke but a fluke that was given to them or the opportunity for a fluke was granted to them by Steve Wilkes' horrendous play call and Charvarius Ward's brain fart. Just knocked the goddamn ball down. But the Vikings in the second half, did they run the ball some? Yeah. Ran it more in the first half, ran it more effectively in the second half, but or in the first half, rather, but didn't care in the second half because they knew they could throw it. Why... Why have a second and eight when you could just get another first down throwing the ball? They didn't care. Ten incompletions. I don't know if it's schematic or personnel. We know the Niners play soft coverage. We know they do. Charvarius Ward is as close to a number one lockdown corner that they've had since... I mean, Sherman was good in 2019. They've had, you know... God, Nate Clement, you're going to go back to Deion Sanders in 1994, um, and other corners that I'm forgetting along the way. Forgive me. He plays aggressive. Diamondor Lenore can play aggressive. I'm not sure about Isaiah Oliver. I don't know about Anthony Brown because he hasn't seen the field since coming over from the Cowboys, or at least he didn't see the field this game. Hopefully when Womack comes back off of IR, and I don't think Daryl Luther, the fifth round draft pick this year, who's on the pup list, is really going to make any sort of impact. But if you have, if this team has as much talent at every level, and we're going to get into the D-line next, and at linebacker, and corner, and safety, why are we playing safe? And I hate to say we because I'm not on the team. I am just someone who converts beer into piss, much like you all are. Except I haven't had a beer in a while, so I'm converting either wine or truly your white claw into piss. Why are they not playing more aggressive? They don't need to be a blitz-happy team like the Vikings or, or what Jim Schwartz and the Browns did. That's just not their personality. I understand that they play a defense that, in some ways, a cover three that makes quarterbacks frustrated and maybe forcing a ball or making a mistake, let the other team beat you. However... When your D-line is getting no pass rush, and why is that D-line? Why is that Steve Wilkes? Even Nick Bosa's wondering it. You have Bosa, who should be better than his rookie year, or, I mean, technically maybe last year was his MVP year. That might be tough to top. Bosa, Hargrave, who generates pressure. Armstead could do the same. Then whether you have Farrell, Randy Gregory, um, or Drake Jackson on the other side as your front four, and then... A fresh Kinlaw and Givens giving you some really good and valuable snaps also. No sacks against the Vikings. Vikings have an okay offensive line. They have a good quarterback. And it's not like, how many plays did we see 
Cousins take a five or seven step drop or have time in the pocket and the front four did not get there. The one time they did in fourth quarter where it looked like Cousins was sandwiched in between a couple Niner players, he squirts through and I, I forget if he completed the pass or not, but it was a legal contact on Charvarius Ward anyway, so it didn't matter. No pressure from your front four? Now, Nick Bosa, I, I caught a quick clip in the pre-game, a post-game press conference on Bosa's thoughts on blitzing. And he's a very soft-spoken guy, but you could tell he wasn't maybe in agreement. But here's his quote. It definitely works out sometimes, but we're usually a rush four kind of team. But uh, it's a little different this year. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That was the quote. The butts, the uhs, the yes, I that, that's what he said. Now, is it a concern for any of us or for Shanahan or for Steve Wilkes or other defensive line mates? Nick Bosa has three and a half sacks in the last 12 games. He's in a bit of a funk. Still deserves the money he got. Let's not go the, oh, he's overpaid or, oh, he got the bag, so he's not trying it. None of that. None of that. But they have to find ways to free him up or have him free up other people to get home and get to the quarterback. It's great that the defensive line is fifth in the NFL in quarterback pressure percentage. Getting near the quarterback, pressuring, but they are 21st in sack percentage. And Bosa did say, and I don't have this quote written down from what I'm remembering, he's like, I had a couple opportunities to make game-changing plays, meaning sacks. I need to be better. He recognizes it. The D-line does. I'm sure Wilkes does. We all see it. We're not seeing this. For the talk of maybe having a better pass rush in 2019, it ain't close right now, guys. It's not. And you can maybe say the personnel's better. A more polished Bosa. Hargrave and, um, I'm sorry, let's go. Eric Armstead's a couple years older. That's fine. You know, D Ford was the other DN, but he was always hurt. So your rotation between Farrell and Jackson and Gregory should give you something close to the same. And DeForest Buckner and Hargrave, I would say is a push. Why is it so much worse? Is it automatically, are our teams scheming better for the Niners on their line? Maybe. Are they playing offensive lines better than they did in 2019? Maybe. I'm not going to go in and check. I'm not that much of a football nerd. Could it be Steve Wilkes and his schemes? Maybe. And of course, you just have bad luck or almost getting there and QB getting rid of the ball, whatever. I mentioned last podcast or two podcasts ago when Steve Wilkes was asked, who calls the D-line stunts? Is it you or defensive line coach Chris Kosorek? And he says, no, everything comes from me. Let's try giving that up. We are more than a third of the way through the season, almost halfway through the season. And the pass rush with four does not look good. Moreover, your pass rush with five or six is also not getting there. So you know what? I would rather rush four and play coverage. If you're not going to get to the quarterback anyway, drop as many people as you can into coverage. Whether it's man, zones, flood the field, flood the zone with seven, and hope eventually your front four gets there. It's not working now, but neither is five or six. So you might as well just cover. On rundowns, if you want to send run blitzes that you know is going to be fine, or you have a strong suspicion it's going to be a run, that's fine. Steve Wilkes has forgotten more about football than I or any one of us will ever know. 
but we can't have the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and it not working. Got to figure out a way to make your really talented front four as talented as make them as talented on the field as they are on paper. I said last podcast, they are living on reputation from the past couple years. This is not nearly as good production wise, sack wise, impact game changing play wise, as good as the line has been in the past couple years. It's the same or better personnel. Something needs to change. And defense overall, before we start talking some offense, this is a soft defense, not soft players. They got some dogs. They got some tough guys, all pro players at every level. It's a soft schematic defense. This umbrella coverage, cover three, keep everything in front of you, bend but don't break. It's now I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I don't even know what I want because it's the past two games or even and some other games. It just it just looked too easy for teams. It should, however high up you want to rank Kirk Cousins, top ten, top twelve, it shouldn't have looked that easy for him without Justin Jefferson. It shouldn't look that easy for him with Justin Jefferson. I said it earlier. Kudos to the Vikings coaching staff. They schemed up a great offensive game plan. But Steve Wilkes' scheme plus the Niners' talent should be able to counteract that or keep Cousins. They should have shaved 100 yards off of his total. 270, 280, I could understand and live with. Because again, Kirk Cousins is a very good quarterback and probably the most underrated in the league. But this bend but don't break defense, good quarterbacks are going to break it. More dynamic offenses are going to break it. And that's what you have coming up this week before the bye with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd and Joe Mixon. Then you're going to go to Jacksonville with Trevor Lawrence and Calvin Ridley and Christian Kirk, uh, Zay Jones if he's healthy, Travis Etienne, Evan Ingram. You, you can bend a lot against bad defenses or average, I'm sorry, bad offenses or average offenses, average quarterbacks, and then you can snap back and stop them when you need to. Against better offenses, it's not going to work. Kudos, at least in the second half, the bend but don't break didn't work. The Niners allowed 16 points in the first half. That was a missed uh, extra point on the ridiculous end of half score by Jordan Addison. Got a goal line stand in the third. The Vikings had it first and goal at the one. They stopped uh, Cousins on a QB sneak with (laughs) uh, Fred Warner jumping and torpedoing himself at Cousins. Got another stop, got a penalty, and were able to get out of there with a field goal just down 19-7. Touchdown still would have made it a two-score game, 23-7. Wouldn't have been the end of the world, but it would have been two touchdowns and two two, two, uh, two two-point conversions needed to tie the game. And then they forced another field goal later on to make it 22 to 14, still a one score game. And then the field goal made it 22 to 17 before the Niners had their two shots at the end. So the not, the defense snapped back a little bit more in the second half, but they couldn't get off the field on third downs. They could not get to cousins, literally get to him or get to him on the ground. They did not make Kirk cousins feel uncomfortable. If you do not make good above average or stellar quarterbacks uncomfortable you will pay and they paid against an offense other than Hawkinson yeah Addison's a nice player I'm not gonna he's still a rookie I'm not gonna be 
coronating him anything right now. But against an offense that you knew coming in couldn't run the ball, kind of established it in the first half, went away from it because they knew, hey, Niners secondary, you guys suck. I'm just going to throw the ball on you. Now let's flip it around to the offensive side. The O-line played better than expected, right? Only allowed one sack. That was either going to be a sack or a throwaway on Purdy as he was rolling left. Um, Daniil Hunter just came torpedoing around the right-hand side of the line and wound up getting to him. Even if he didn't throw it away, it would have been, if he threw it away, it would have been third down. Otherwise, it was a sack. So it didn't matter. Uh, But all in all, the offensive line played well. Jalen Moore in for Trent Williams. We didn't hear his name called at all, right? No penalties. He held up well. Now, maybe it's keeping Kittle in all game to help block and the 21 snaps that Werner was in to help block because, you know, he wasn't going out into a pattern. So you had probably six-man lines quite a bit. But Jalen Moore, kudos, all game only allowed one pressure and one hurry. Well done. Offensive targets. Figure this out. Brandon Ayuk was basically uncoverable in the first half. Had five catches for 57 yards. In the second half, one throw his way. The one that hit the ground that he tried to scoop back up as Purdy was rolling left and threw back around his body. How how does Brandon Ayuk just get one target in the second half? How does your number one receiver and receiving option that game, in my opinion, get one target? I refuse to believe that the Vikings took him away. I, I highly doubt it. But five, five targets in the first half, you should have another five in the second half. Even if it's a contested throw from, from Purdy. Give Ayuk a chance. Disappeared in the second half. Kittle, five for 78. Great that he showed up. And, and I think his receptions were kind of sprinkled relatively evenly between first and second half. They, for, for the Bengal game, and if Debo's not back in the Jaguar game after the bye, they need to force feed Kittle the ball. Purdy needs to force feed Ayuk the ball, and Shanahan needs to scheme up plays where Ayuk and Kittle are the first and second reads. Andy Reid does it for the Chiefs. Mahomes has that comfort level. They've been playing for a long time together. Purdy doesn't maybe have that, obviously, chemistry yet with any one specific person. It feels like it's Ayuk. But put Kittle in position to be a playmaker. It's great that he blocks as well as he does. This team needs to score more, especially if the defense is going to be giving up 20-plus points a game. And the Bengals can put that up. Bengals haven't looked like world beaters, but you don't think they're going to score you know, 20-plus in San Francisco next week? I do. Ayuk, Kittle, McCaffrey. You know McCaffrey's going to get force-fed the ball because Shanahan can't bear to take him out of the game. But beyond him, beyond being so McCaffrey-centric, and it helps. They're a better team with him than without him. But they could maybe even be a better team with him off the field a little bit to commit to a second running back to tenderize the defense a little bit. Use Jordan Mason. Give them a different look, a power-running look. Something else that a defense needs to prepare for. And why, you know, so why could San Francisco not run the ball? Was it because they was it because the Minnesota Vikings were showing blitz so often? Because they often had 
six or seven men around the line of scrimmage. The game was still close, even at 19-12. It's a two-score game early in the third quarter. You don't have to get away from the run. I mean, to really commit, to not be able to commit to the run. Mason didn't play at all. To me, that's egregious. Eli Mitchell having, what, three snaps? That's absurd. Four snaps, sorry. Oh, maybe that's not as absurd as three. What's the deal? Other teams, or basically every other team in the NFL, has a two-back rotation. Running back number two doesn't get as many carries as running back number one, but running back number two doesn't usually get under four. And it's nothing against McCaffrey. It's not... One, consider him to be fresher for the, the playoff run. Hopefully there still is one. I, th- I do think there will be. The sky isn't falling. But Jesus Christ, you have four running backs on your roster. You might as well use the other three. If you lost faith in Eli Mitchell for whatever reason... Throw in Ty Davis Price. At least he's another big back. Use somebody. And I had said last podcast, it would have been better for Shanahan if McCaffrey, if they're going to lose anyway, let's just say. We, we know they lost. Without McCaffrey, I would have wanted him to get really comfortable really fast with another running back on this roster. And McCaffrey not playing would have gone some length to do that. And then, of course, when McCaffrey's healthy, he just would have been all buddy-buddy bromance with him. I'm glad the Niners have McCaffrey. Do not misunderstand any of this. Just like the Niners need another viable tight end option, they need another viable running back option. You cannot convince me otherwise. It's not the reason why they lost against the Browns and the Vikings, but it can diversify the attack a bit more as the season goes on. Felt bad for Jake Moody missing that first field goal. 40-yard line right around where he missed against the Browns. Shaded it, sh- uh, shaved it right again. Went back and killed a 54-yarder. Hit his, kicked his extra point. Hopefully that's all over and done with. Not a big deal. Niners offense didn't do enough, but the defense certainly let them down. And Steve Wilkes and Charverius Ward specifically at the end of the half. I don't want to, so mathematically, that's the difference in the game, right? 22 to 15, you take that touchdown away, it's a 17-16 game because they missed the extra point. If that touchdown doesn't happen, I cannot butterfly effect, right? In time travel, you just can't assume that you change one thing that it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay the way everything is, right? Martin McFly goes back in time. His dad punches out Biff. Marty McFly's a, uh, his dad's a, heavier looking uh author now and and biff's uh waxing cars things are things are going to change if that touchdown doesn't happen the niners don't automatically win 17 to 16 but god you feel just from a moral emotional standpoint that is so deflating for a team and then they come out they don't do anything with the ball they give it back to the vikings and the vikings add three more so it's 1917 The two picks that Purdy had, and we haven't talked about him yet. I'm not sweeping it under the rug. First pick, I don't think was, te- they were bad because they occurred in Viking territory. At the Vikings, 30, second to last drive. Last drive, he got intercepted at the 22, both by safety Cam By Cameron Bynum. Good for him. The first one, if Jennings didn't get out of his break quick enough and Purdy was anticipating him, maybe taking it a little bit shorter, running faster or whatever, Fine. Timing issue. Not great. Not great. 
but timing issue. They had a chance. It was 22 to 17 at that point to take the lead. The last, the second pick, the one at the end of the game that ended it, that is an egregious pick to me. When he scrambled to the right, he could not have run because there was a there was someone spying him. He could have just thrown it away. Instead, he threw it not totally across his field, but to the middle of the field to his shortest receiver, Ray Ray McLeod, and tried to get it over the safety. Bad decision. And I was sitting there after each interception, watching it with my older son. He was more upset than me. Maybe I'm getting mature at 45. I mean, it was bound to happen, right? Um, I, I It was honestly like disbelief. Like I, I couldn't believe that I saw the first pick. And I couldn't believe that I saw the second pick. Not that, not the the egregiousness of the interceptions. Not how the second one was like, oh shit, you really shouldn't have thrown that. The fact that I saw interceptions at all. And I think that's the part where, and now the narrative is, you know, uh, are you losing faith in Brock Purdy? It, Brock Purdy, is this who Brock Purdy is? It's like, there, yes, he had a bad game and he shoulders, he shoulders a good amount of the blame for the loss. He does. Those two interceptions driving in Minnesota territory, they were killer. The last one was the absolute killer. So the narrative, obviously, there's going to be a lot of Brock bashing this week. And that's okay because he's a seventh round pick. If he was a first round pick or a second round pick, wouldn't be nearly as much. We know that because media people are morons. But I'm, I'm flipping it. The, it's not even a flip. It's how I felt last night. I was in disbelief at the interceptions. Because I'm not expecting him to do that. It's not like with Jimmy, you you knew he was good for one boneheaded pick a game. Or Dak Prescott. Or, drawing a blank on other quarterbacks that throws interceptions. Brock doesn't throw interceptions. He's careful with the ball. Him to throw one was appalling. Him to throw two was earth shattering. So I felt in a weird way more comfortable about, or or... I don't know what the right word is confident maybe in the 49ers QB situation because it's a QB now that when he throws a pick, you're shocked. That means he's got good equity with me and should have some solid equity with you guys as well. I'm not saying any of this to excuse the two interceptions. He's one of the reasons why they lost, but he's not doing this every week. And on the season, he has 11 touchdowns and three interceptions. Still one of the best touchdown interception ratios in the league. I'll take it. How many weeks have I said, bad games are going to come. He's going to lose a game or games, which he has. He's going to throw an interception or interceptions, which he has. It's going to happen. And I'm not even using the Debo as an excuse. Kirk Cousins didn't have the best receiver in football, and he still throws for almost 380. Now, before the season, just to kind of conclude before we get to the plus section, I said San Francisco would go 11-6, and six, that there was going to be some games that they won that they shouldn't, some games that they lose that they shouldn't. And, you know, after the first five weeks, everyone was saying, oh, people are saying 15-2, and 14-3. This is how the NFL goes. Per Nick Bosa, the NFL humbles you at times. Humbles fans, humbles players for sure. So I think an 11-6 and six season, season still feels about right for this team. Could they get absolutely hot and, and roll off some games? Yeah. But... Do you have as much confidence in, in the Bengal game now as three weeks ago? At Jacksonville now as three weeks ago? Going to Philly, going to Seattle, at home for Baltimore. They're going to win some of those. Not going to win all of them. You know, 
a Cardinal game, Cardinals at in Arizona, uh, the Rams at home, the Commanders. I mean, there's there are winnable games, and there's certainly winnable games. This is still a top three roster in the league, a top three team in the league, top five, three, five team, however you want to do your power rankings and air quotes. It just makes each game now more important because you don't want to keep falling behind Philadelphia and you don't want to lose and have the Seahawks win and really be biting your nails down the line to see if the Niners can hold on to win the West. The, the Seahawks are, I know I hate the Seahawks and a lot of fans do, but they are a better team than maybe I think teams want to give credit them credit for. Plus, they can play that man-up bump challenge receivers that gave San Francisco trouble in Cleveland. Vikings tried that with their blitzing and they played some zone behind it. But Purdy, 70% of his passes, guys, still completed 70% of his passes, even with a two-pick game. Above his average. Picks weren't great. That's the anomaly. First game in his career, he's thrown two interceptions. Now, lastly, this is just a, a point to ponder. Should Debo have gone on IR? He's got a hairline fracture of something. I don't know if it's his clavicle. I don't know if it's his actual, the ball joint, his shoulder joint that goes, you know, in the socket. It's a ball and socket joint. So he, he wasn't put on for this game. Bengals are next, so he has a week to heal up, then a bye, then the Jaguars. So technically he has four weeks to heal from that. I am no doctor. Even if I look up stuff online, it's not going to matter because I don't. we don't know Debo's x-rays or how, how quickly doctors are saying it may or may not heal, or if it's not healed, could they protect it somehow? I don't know. But when have we ever seen a 49er player come back early from an injury? If you want to say, oh, Al, what about McCaffrey this week? All right, it was, again, a tear sounds bad to us, but if a doctor says, nah, that's a slight tear, he's fine, fine. And there's maybe a pain tolerance thing. But why not put Debo on IR? So he would have been out this game, Bengals, bye week, Jacksonville, and be back for the game after the Jaguar game. You could elevate Chris Conley for those four games so you don't have to worry about keeping keep elevating receivers because now they're going to go back and forth. It'll probably be Willie Sneed this week. Then there's the bye. Then it'll probably be Chris Conley again against the Jaguars. And then maybe Debo's back. But then by that time, you would have you will have elevated both Conley and Sneed twice, three times, and you can't do it anymore unless you want to put him on the active roster. I don't know. I didn't agree with that. Yes, Debo's a big part of the offense. The Niners' injury history predictions, all that. It never turns out to be what the optimistic, not even optimistic, what the thought is going to be when it comes to injuries like this. Brock Purdy came back a little, you know, a week or two early from the, the elbow thing. That was great. I just don't have faith and trust based on the historical evidence that we've had. And there's been a lot of Niner injuries over the years. So tough loss, still in first place in the NFC West, looking to bounce back against a Bengals team that hasn't looked all that great, struggled with uh, the Seahawks, but beat the Seahawks uh, for the Niners. So thank you for that, stopping them on a fourth down, I think inside the 10 or 15 um, in Cincinnati two weeks ago. It's a team that can play. It's a very, very good quarterback, a very good three wide receivers, and a team that can't run. So you know what? They're going to probably take a page out of the Vikings playbook, try to establish the run a bit, just to make it look good, and then just throw all over San Francisco. Let's see if Steve Wilkes, Chris Kosorek, Kyle Shanahan, and company 
can do something to get the defense righted a bit. And offensively, 17 points isn't going to cut it. You got to get into the mid-20s, guys. Remember, 30 to start the season, five straight games. Let's get back up to 24-27. I'll feel really good about winning any game that they're playing. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stick around. We're going to be talking plus section, starting off with asshole parents at kids sporting events, Loki episode three and five NFL games, Bears, Raiders, Pats, Bills, Browns, Colts, Ravens, Lions, and Chiefs, Chargers that I have some thoughts on. Stay with us. It's plus time. Okay, for those of you that have kids, let's start off the plus section with something that you probably can relate to, especially if your kids are in sports. Asshole parents that are at sporting events. So yesterday, Sunday, was is our flag football day. I coach a fifth and sixth grade team that my son's on, um, some friends and some kids that have become friends. Uh, we are historically a bad team. I was trying to think before the podcast how long that I've been coaching. This is my sixth season. That doesn't mean six years or calendar years. There's basically three seasons, a calendar year. And we started, I think, in fourth grade in the fall, winter, spring. And then fifth grade, we did fall and spring or fall and winter. And then this is now we're in sixth grade in the fall. This is number six. So we've been historically bad. We started out as the Steelers for two years. Ironically, the best season we had was our first season when I guess everybody was trying to figure out what the heck was going on, and we went two and four, two and five. So that was our high watermark for a while. Two wins. We've had seasons where we won no games, one game, won one game, one tied one game, but no more than two wins. And that's fine. You know, as long as obviously with any sport, as long as the kids are having fun learning, and we certainly have gotten better, even though it hasn't really shown in the uh, the scoreboards or the win-losses. Because in some seasons, you're playing against kids that play tackle football. You're playing against kids that have three dynamic, for their age, athletes that you know sometimes we don't have an answer for, and it's six on six. It's like the NBA. If you have one, two, or three really good players, they can just run circles around you know kids that just aren't as athletic or aren't as fast or coordinated. That's okay. We compete, you know, we're in some games, um, kids don't really get down anymore. Usually, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, if we got down seven, nothing, the kids in the, in the huddle would be all dejected. Like, oh, we're going to lose again. We don't have that anymore, which is great. And this is, you know, the best team that we've had. Um, we started out with this as the Steelers for two seasons. Then when I realized I can pick my team that I'm like, all right, we're going to be the 49ers. Cause that's obviously my favorite team. <clears throat> Ugly gold t-shirts for the kids. I thought they might be red or like a cardinal color, just, you know, something ugly gold. So we kept that for maybe two or three seasons, bad luck. And I do believe in like luck or karma or, you know, switching stuff up. I'm like, all right, let's, let's do something different. I have a reversible Mark Brunel jersey that I bought a couple years ago. Don't ask me why, other than the fact that I like Mark Brunel and it was like 15 bucks on eBay and it was reversible. Like, all right, you know, I can get the the teal blue, flip it around, reverse it, I get white, you know, two for the price of one. So I have that jersey. I'm like, all right, let's let's be the Jaguars this season for the fall because I got the Jaguars jersey. We'll, we'll switch up the, the t-shirts. We'll get a blue t-shirt, et cetera. T-shirts come in, they're gold again. The only thing that's teal is the outline of the word Jaguars on the t-shirt. I can't, yes, there is a little bit of gold 
you know, a Jaguar does have that gold color, but man, the reason why I changed the t-shirts was to get a different color. Alas. So the first game we um, were playing against the best team in the league. We got killed 39 to like 13, but I told the kids like, listen, Hey, this is a learning experience. Don't look at the scoreboard. Consider it a glorified practice. Let's just execute. And we got better and better each week. We're six weeks into the season. We are four and two. First time we've won more than two games. First time we're going to finish with a winning record. And we have a pretty decent chance of making it into the playoffs. Now that was three and a half minutes. And I didn't get to the asshole or snowflake parents part of the story. But we're getting there. As we started winning, even after we won our first game, because it was a tight game or maybe our second game, I made a deal with the kids. I'm like, hey guys, if you don't want me to yell and coach loudly, just get blown out. Just lie down. Get killed like we did the first game. Doesn't matter. As long as you're having fun, I don't care. But if you want to compete and maybe win some of these games, I'm going to coach you hard and loud from the sidelines. Plus, there's these are boys, right? Like they're they're dancing on the field. They're looking up. It's like a it's like a dog who sees a squirrel. Like their attention is you got to be loud to get get their attention. Now I might be louder than than a lot of coaches out there, but one I'm Italian and two that's how I have to get my team's attention. That's how I know that they're going to respond. They have to make eye contact with me even if they're across the field so I know they're paying attention. So I know that they're hearing me. Plus it is a 25-yard wide field, so if I'm going to get the attention of a kid on the far sideline, I have to yell. It's impossible otherwise. So that was my deal with the kids. If you want to win, and there's two other coaches that help out that are awesome. You know, we're all sometimes kind of yelling or, you know, who's helping defense and offense and whatever. So I'm Italian. You know that already, my last name. I'm a loud and animated coach. We played um, a decent team yesterday. And we were down uh, 7-0. Um, scored at the very end of the first half to make it 7-7, which was awesome because then we got the ball. Uh, although we didn't, we couldn't do much with it, whether it was, it was a late game, cold weather, kids were dropping a lot of passes. Um, and I'm sometimes the coddling coach of like, all right, it's okay, buddy. You know, let's get it next time. But once it becomes a drop parade, then kids are going to get yelled at. It's going to be, Hey, you know, Jake, catch the ball. Come on, man. Squeeze it. Follow your eyes. Do it to anyone. I coach my son the hardest because I can yell at my son more than I can yell at anyone else's son. Although I've gotten the carte blanche it's okay from all the parents on my team to yell at them as much as they need it. Cause they know their kids, right? All our kids are assholes, boys, girls. I'm just coaching boys. They're all assholes at times. Got to get their attention. Somehow yelling seems to do the trick. Right. And I don't think they've, um, I'm not white noise to them yet. So we actually wind up winning. So there was, there was multiple bad calls during the game. Um, one bad call where a kid, you know, caught the ball on the other team, caught the ball, Literally, like if you put a yardstick down, probably two to three feet past the end zone back line that the ref called a touchdown. And it wasn't really the ref's fault. He was behind the quarterback. So he was probably 20 yards away. Couldn't see, but it was terrible. Three of my kids are going nuts on the end line. I'm I'm there with them. Like, I'm like, ref, like bad call. But I'm like, and I'm telling the kids like, go like your, your job isn't to argue with the ref. I will. I know it's not going to change anything. Totally fine. Whatever. That lasted like maybe five seconds, 10 seconds. Touchdown, they're up 14 to 7. We get the ball back a little bit later in the game with five minutes to go. We score to make it 14-13. Don't get the conversion. And then stop them, get the ball back with under a minute left, 
and we score with five seconds left to win 19 to 14. So after the game, we're, you know, shaking hands with, with everybody. The coach, who's a really nice guy, and I'm not going to say what the team is, but really nice guy, puts his arm around me. He's like, oh, you know, you can't yell that much and, and get that animated and, and, and act that way. I'm like, buddy, you do you, I'm going to do me. Did I yell at you? Did I yell at your kids? Did I yell at your fans? No. So I didn't tell him to shut up. I'm like, just you do you and I'll do me. Like, you're never going to be able to tell me what to do. You have no authority over me. Fine. You know, have a good rest of the night. Thought it was over. So I'm walking off the field and asshole parents decide to chirp at me. And anybody out there that's listening that knows me, if you're going to chirp at me, don't be shocked when I chirp back. I don't care if you're a man, woman, animal, a tree that can move like in Lord of the Rings. It doesn't matter. If you want to be that brazen and chirp, let's go. So I had fathers yelling at me. I think it was the wife of the coach. Uh, you're yelling so much. You made your someone on your team cry, which I didn't. Uh one father saying, oh, I, I've got it recorded that your touchdown, the guy was out of bounds. I'm like, all right, cool. Show me your touchdown. Your guy was out of bounds too, whatever. You're complaining to the refs and yeah, that I'm like, yes, I am. Because there were bad calls. The, it's unfortunate that there's only one ref. There should be two refs. But the kid did as, as well as he can. Well, as he did, I think it was like a college kid. And I congratulated afterwards and said, you know, good game, etc. No big deal. Now these parents are saying as I'm trying to walk off because I'm just not going to take shit from anybody. It's not the fact that it was one woman that was talking to me like, oh, you're a big guy for talking back to a woman. No, no. There was like three guys too that if you want to spout at me, I'm going to spout back. I'm not going to turn the other cheek and I don't deserve to be verbally abused by parents of another team when all their issue is is how I'm coaching my team. That's irrelevant. I'm not coaching church choir. And even though this isn't a travel sport, they are fifth and sixth graders. These are big boys now. They could be talked to like an adult or yelled at like an adult. You think a third grade football coach coaches their kids nicely and, oh, it's okay, snowflake, you'll get them next time. No, because I've seen it. I've seen another travel sport starting in third and fourth grade. I'm going to speak up on the field and off the field if you're going to be coming at me. But naturally, these snowflake parents are saying, well, I hope you enjoy your last season as coaching because we're going to write letters and we're all like, write your letters, make sure you spell my name right. And if anything happens out of this, fine, whatever. If I get suspended or I can't coach anymore, whatever. I don't think it's going to come to that because I got a whole lot I could say to the commission about what those parents were saying to me. Ass assholes and snowflakes at the same time because I didn't, and they're, listen, their coach was very nice. I'm not going to say a bad thing about him. Very nice. But if he's a coach, that's not going to raise his voice or whatever. That's his own. Maybe that's why you lost the game, dude. Maybe if you were a little bit more emotionally invested, your team wouldn't have two wins and not be that good and lose at the end of the game. All that being said, there's different styles, right? If they think it's embarrassing to see a coach act that way, then great. Then tell your kids, like, I'm not a role model for your kids. Tell your kids, well, that, you know, that's a coach and, and we're not going to coach that way. And, and they were all huddled around the other coach, the parents, like consoling or saying, that's okay, man. You're, you're the better. Cause I saw them and overheard some of it. You're the better coach because you did it the right way. What right way? It's not really about wins and losses, but you lost. I got into it more than you. That's not that. That's not the reason why we won, but too bad. 
I'm not going to conform. I don't care, parents of the other team, how you like me as a coach. Oh, by the way, I have 13 kids on my friggin' team. More than any team at any grade level. And they all want to play on this team. And I have carte blanche from the parents of, we know our kids don't listen, coach them how you want to. And practices are super fine and fun. And when I have to like, you know, be a disciplinarian in practice, because again, these are just kids that act like idiots sometimes, I will. But if I'm not saying anything to you, other coach, your kids, which I never do, or the parents, which why would I do that? Shut up. So write your letters, be a snowflake. People think that because they have an opinion, they have a, have a say. And you can have an opinion that you don't like my coaching style. That's fine. But you don't have a say about shit. And if you think you do and you're going to go to the commissioner who I already talked to, he's like, no, no, I came out for the last 10 minutes of the game. You were fine. Yeah, I was. That's That 10 minute span was how I was the whole game. If you don't like someone complaining, don't play sports. Because you're going to have parents complaining, kids complaining, coaches. Everyone's going to complain. You don't like that. Go to a, again, church choir. Have your kids play the flutophone, the piano, the harp, ballet. Put even your boy kids in ballet. It'll be a more peaceful experience for you. If any of those parents are listening, you can eat shit. I know they're not, but just wanted to throw that in there. So... Even though this is a rec league, this flag football uh, football league, it's it's in my, the town I live in. But it's other other players from other towns can come into it. It's not just specific. It's like a regional type of thing. And listen, I've seen coaches get into fights. I've seen loud verbal altercations with refs. I've had an, I had another basically like a hell's angel dropout, which is what I called him. Get in my face, this dude with a beard, because I told my defense like. Come on up, guys. They're, I, I don't think they're strong enough to throw it deep. Like, just play up, play up. Comes sprinting to me. Oh, you saying my kids can't throw deep? I'm like, I know your kid can't throw deep, but what's the problem with that? I can't coach my kids and tell them that? Got right in my face, nose to nose. I'm like, dude, do something. Like, it, it, ridiculous. And I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to back down from anybody, especially when you're acting like an asshole. So it can get a little intense at times. And I'm at the point while I will net, while, while I never ever will condone what I'm about to say. And would never, ever do it and never, ever condone it. Let me just say that. I understand how people go postal. I understand how Michael Douglas in the movie Falling Down just went nuts on people. Because other people are exhausting. They're assholes. They're Karens. And the male equivalent is Kevin wants to complain about anything that's not right. And cool, if you're not not a big fan of like a very, like a Bobby Knight type of coach. Cool. I don't care. That's not your problem. You do you, I do me. Now, there is a flip side to this, though, that I want to talk about. I mentioned travel sports. And even though this flag football isn't travel, it is regional, there are travel sports in this town that you have to pay close to $500 a season sometimes to play in. And some of these have written in it that uh, playing time is at the coach's discretion. Now, if you're talking like 8th, ninth grade, well, ninth grade, nine, 10, 11, 12, I had to count on my fingers like a child. Ninth grade is, is high school. But when you're talking about high school and obviously college or the pros, yeah, if you're like playing ba- basketball and you're like maybe the eighth, ninth, or 10th guy on the bench, you're probably not going to play that much. Then again, it's high school or you're in college and you probably have a scholarship or you walked on to get a scholarship or you walked on, you don't have a scholarship, but you could just say, Hey, I'm part of the basketball team. Good for you. And of course the NBA, you're getting paid millions of dollars. So if you're sitting, you're sitting. 
But there are organizations, and I've seen it, I've experienced my family's experienced it, where they will only play the kids that they think are good enough to play, even in blowouts. I've seen a 32-minute basketball game where some kids play all 32 minutes and other kids play a minute. Literally a minute. That's almost insulting in a blowout. And this other organization, this one organization in my town has a rule that you can't talk to a coach for 24 hours after a game. A third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth basketball, well, I guess it's just basketball, lacrosse, soccer, whatever, but I, I know this rule specifically for basketball. Sorry to drop the F on again, but who the fuck are you? I can't talk to a coach for 24 hours after a game, yet professionals get in front of a microphone less than an app, sometimes in a locker room while they're getting changed, asking, oh, ha- what happened on that missed field goal or that missed touchdown, that interception, that missed tackle, whatever it may be, basketball, that missed free throw or three. Coaches, same thing, right away. But you can't go to someone. Now, granted, they're volunteers. They're not getting paid. At least I, I don't think they are. But parents, and I live in a district where parents are super assholes to teachers. And I know this for a fact. Emails, um, rude in converse in in actual face-to-face conversations with teachers. And you you're okay doing that to a teacher, but you think a coach is gonna get preferential treatment? No way. And I actually had uh, an email altercation with uh or not an altercation, but a discussion with someone at the head of another basketball league. My older son was in a basketball league at a certain organization. I couldn't make any of the fundraising dates and times due to my work schedule. And I actually had to travel. So I email, and it's one of those situations where sometimes you just don't email back. Like sometimes giving someone a heads up just opens the floodgates for more aggravation and discussion where it's like, if you just ignore them, it'll be fine. But I thought like, oh, this is polite. Let me just let them know. Hey, I, this weekend, if there's a tournament or something, um, I'm going to be traveling for work. I can't, I, there's nothing I can help out. Let me know at another time if I can help. And I get a terse response back. Are you telling me that you can't find one hour to, to help out at this? I'm like, it's exactly what I'm telling you. If you can read English, that's what I put in the email. The response back I get from the commissioner of the league is exactly this. Well, I hope this doesn't affect your son's playing time because I'm going to mention it to the coach. And, you know, that might not be, you know, the coach might not think that so well. To which my response back was, Steve, thanks so much for putting that in writing. It's always helpful to have a paper trail in case I need to get lawyers involved about you being a jerk and my schedule not being able to um, participate in a fundraiser is affecting my son's playing time. Thanks so much. This will be very helpful for my lawyers if it comes to it. And then I get an email back all nice. You know, Oh, I know you're coaching your, your younger son. So I guess that's so you're okay. I'm like, yeah, great. People are just jerk off to see how far that they can get, right? So asshole parents, asshole organizations, asshole coaches, so this year, I'm going to be coaching my younger son's third grade um, travel basketball program at another organization. And if I did it at this asshole organization, I would, Im- I would invoke the same sort of thing. Rec basketball at, at whatever organization in town or any town that you live in, in my town or any town you live in, if it's a 32-minute game, they sub every four minutes. They make sure everybody plays as equal amount as mathematically possible, and that's what they do in first and second grade, and I'm coaching third grade now, so now second graders are going to have to adapt to third grade, where you just can't pick up and run with the ball. You can't double dribble. You can't foul that much, so you actually have to play legit basketball, and I'm sure the refs will give you know some... If you take, if a kid takes a third step, it's okay. Or 
they'll let some stuff go, I would imagine. Not egregiously, but some stuff. But as the coach, I told people that are trying out, like, here's my motto. If your child makes the team, it means you're paying, so he's playing. And I'm not Pat Riley. I'm not Phil Jackson. Um, I, why am I blanking out on any other? <laughs> Tom Thibodeau, who's the coach of the Nets, uh, or the Knicks right now, sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to be responsible for keeping track of how much kids play or don't. So if I have 10 kids, which I may not, when we get to about the four minute mark and there's a dead ball of each quarter, starting five come out, other five come in at the end of the quarter, we flip again. Then we're in the second quarter. Once the four minute mark hits and there's a dead ball, you know, at a bat, whatever we swap again. I want to make sure that everyone's playing because the only way they're playing and kids are you know, the only way they're learning and they are learning in practice is by playing in a game. And I've seen it. I've heard it from other people. And I've been on the receiving end of being a parent at a game. Forget the time commitment thing that your child is not playing. It's heartbreaking for you because you know, it's heartbreaking for them. I don't want parents to go through that. Now, at the end of a game, even though while even though winning is not the most important thing, it's learning. If a game is close and it's the last two minutes, um, maybe I put my best shooters out there, or best dribblers, or best defenders for the last thirty seconds of a game. That's of course my prerogative, and I said that to the to the parents. So, I mean, are we going to get like? There's no way I can guarantee kids are playing. Every kid's playing sixty minutes a game. It's mathematically impossible with clock stoppages, right? But if one kid's playing 14 minutes, another's playing 18, are we going to get bent out of shape? If one kid's playing 12, another one's playing um, 20, are we going to get bent out of shape? Like, no. And I'm going to try to keep it as fair as possible, as long as possible. And if our team isn't that good and we're getting killed every game, then it's easy. Then we just, like, if we're not going to be in any games, then everybody plays an equal amount. But if games are close, like, I'm sure these kids want to win a bit, right? So... That's my, so there's the story of, of bad parents, asshole parents, people that think that they can have an opinion and mouth off to someone and then get shocked when that person, me, is going to come back at them because I did see that look. They thought that they were just going to berate me and I was going to walk by and take it. No, 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 no. But travel basketball, we have our first practice tonight. Excited for that. We don't play until beginning of December. So I'm really, it's going to be a big difference between coaching fifth and sixth graders who they're boys, so they're clueless, right, sometimes, and they don't listen, but you expect them to listen because they're older. With third graders, I know they're not going to listen, or they're not going to remember, um, but just want to make it as fun as possible, and listen, we win a couple games along the way, great. If not, as long as everyone plays, gets better, gets some, you know, aerobic activity, feels like, feels part of a team, and the parents are happy, that's ultimately all that matters. So I went much longer on that than I thought. Let's talk Loki episode three, which came out last Thursday. So what is that? Four days ago. Really cool because it opens with a ragtime version of the Marvel studio theme, you know, before the uh, episode actually kicked off. So it was branded right from the get go because the episode takes place in the late 1800s at the Chicago World's Fair. And what's ultimately happening is Loki, the main character, and uh, Mobius, who works at the um, Time Variance Authority, played by Owen Wilson, they're looking for a variant of the Kang character, Kang, who was the big bad at the end of season one. He kind of controls all of time. And they find him at this World's Fair, um, a variant, and his name is Victor Timely. And they need him 
to go with them to the Time Variance Authority because something is happening with the main timeline called the Sacred Timeline, and it's threatening to destroy the TVA. Now, this variant, this version of Victor is an inventor. Um, he's inventing stuff with electricity, um, but he's also a swindler, and he's selling his patents to people, but he's cheating them. Um, he runs out of his demonstration. Loki, Mobius, and other people that have gotten cheated, and others are chasing him. But he eventually escapes with another former TVA agent called Renslayer, along with an AI cartoon character in the shape of a clock, like literally a cartoon character on the screen. And her name is Miss Minutes. And you understand over time that she has a creepy crush on him, which was, <laughs> which was very creepy and awkward, um... But you, I guess, understood it through their dialogue that she's had a, a crush on, she had a crush on the Kang version of him, the super evil version of him at the end of the timeline. This is somebody different. He's trying to explain that. It was a cool, creepy scene all at once. But eventually, um, where Victor Timely is hiding, Loki and Morbius catch up with him along with the female version of, of Loki called Sylvie. She's a, a variant of Loki from a different timeline who wants to kill this person. She wants to kill all the variants of Kang to ensure that no, no variant of Kang comes to power and ruins the timeline. Loki talks her off the ledge, decides not to kill Victor, who then leaves with Loki and Morbius to go to the TVA um, to help fix. And that's ultimately where the episode ends. What's interesting here, though, is you know, there's a good, better than average chance that this Victor Timely character is the original Kang. Um, that is the ultimate big bad in Ant-Man Quantumania. He's going to be the big bad in the Avengers, the Kang Dynasty movie in two years. Um, he's a harmless character right now. You know, he stutters. He seems like a good character, but that could certainly change, especially when the bad TV agent uh, Renslayer went back in time to give a younger version of this Victor Timely character a TVA handbook. So that's almost, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, starting the loop of putting maybe this gentle, stuttering Victor Timely character on a path to becoming this Kang owner of timelines, destroyer of worlds type of person. But the next episode drops on Thursday. Again, Loki, it, it's season two. Season one was six episodes. Season three, season two is going to be six episodes as well. It's a fun, interesting Marvel uh, series that comes out every Thursday. If you haven't checked it out and have any interest, I recommend doing so. Now let's conclude with sports. Five NFL games that I thought were interesting. First one was the Bears beating the Raiders 30-12. to The Bears had 90 more yards of offense, no turnovers, three for the Raiders, eight more minutes of time of possession for Chicago, and this was without Justin Fields. And this is why this is important, because undrafted rookie free agent quarterback Tyson Badgett out of Division II Shepard got the start, his first start ever in the NFL, went 21 of 29, 162 yards, one touchdown, three rushes for 24 yards, wound up completing 72.4% of his passes and led three touchdown drives. Brian Hoyer for the Raiders got the star in place of an injured Jimmy Garoppolo, 17 of 32, 129 yards, 
two interceptions. Running the ball, the Bears ran it 38 times for 175 yards and two scores. Certainly helped out their rookie quarterback. The Raiders, 14 for 39 yards. So this is, a, this is similar to the Niners-Browns game last year. Raiders knew that they were going to have an undrafted rookie D2 quarterback starting, could not take the run away from the Bears. The Bears averaged almost five yards a carry. The Raiders a little over two. What's also impressive about this is Tyson Batchin's completion percentage. I mentioned 72.4. In Justin Fields' 35 starts, he's only had four games with a better completion percentage. He's overall a 60% completion percentage passer, Justin Fields. Doesn't mean Tyson Badgen's the answer. The Bears still have the number one overall pick because the Panthers are winless. And their, their next pick, I think, is in the top three or five based on this win that dropped them down some. So they're still on track to probably take a quarterback at the top of the draft if Caleb Williams comes out. From USC, he may just stay in college. He said he can make more in college than he can um, as a pro quarterback. I don't know if that's mathematically correct. But it was good to see a a young player, a Brock Purdy-ish player. Granted, this is different. D2, undrafted, all that good stuff. Brock, Brock Purdy was one pick away from being undrafted. And who knows where he would have went. And I think for the Jimmy G narrative, now Jimmy G is not a great quarterback. He is an above average quarterback. He's a good quarterback, but he is still so much better than what, than whatever quarterback any team tries to put in instead of him. Hoyer, Trey Lance, um, Nick Mullins in, in San Francisco, and it was Hoyer again in Las Vegas. Raiders had no chance. They would have been in this game much more than Jimmy Garoppolo. He is one of, uh, with Jimmy, He's one of the 32 best quarterbacks on the planet. Anybody that's saying otherwise is a hater, but again, not great, but does not get the due and recognition that he deserves, even though he's not having a great season by any means. The next game, Patriots beating the Bills 29 to 25 in New England. On the last play of the game, Mac Jones 25 of 30 for 272 and two touchdowns. Josh Allen 27 for 41, 265, two touchdowns and interception. Running the ball, neither team was great. The Pats 24 for 96 and a touch. The Bills 24 for 81 and one touchdown. The final drive, Mac Jones goes eight plays, 75 yards in a minute 46. One yard touchdown pass to Mike Gusecki for the win. The Bills got the ball back with like 12 seconds to go. Couldn't do anything with it. And the Patriots get up off the mat and beat a Bills team at four and two that a lot of people like who are now four and three. The Browns wind up beating the Colts 39-38. And this was a week after obviously shutting down the 49ers offense and being told how historic the Browns offense has been through five games. And it has been, but then they go to Indianapolis without Anthony Richardson. Not like he's any great shakes, but their backup quarterback Gardner Minshew's playing Colts put up 38 points and 456 yards of offense, 140 more yards of offense than Cleveland. Colts lost because they turned it over four times, the Browns only twice, but Minshew, 15 of 23, 305 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, and ran for two more touchdowns, but he did lose three fumbles and did throw a pick, so he's responsible for all four interceptions. Deshaun Watson, quarterback of the Browns, got hurt early. 
P.J. Walker came in, went 15 of 32, 178 yards, no touchdowns, and one interception. The Colts and the Browns both ran the ball well, 40 times for 168 yards and three touchdowns. That's four yards a carry. The Browns, 33 times for 150 yards and three touchdowns, nearly five yards per carry. Browns wind up getting the win at the end. There was some controversial calls on the Colts between a pass interference and a holding in the end zone. Regardless, Browns find a way, but this just goes to show how much of a week-to-week is, how they can shut down a top-three offense in San Francisco and go to Indianapolis and get put up you know, 456 yards on you and 38 points. You just don't know. Ravens, 38-6 over the Lions in Baltimore. Baltimore had 503 yards of total offense, 166 yards more than Baltimore. The Ravens were up 28-0 at the half, 35-0 at the end of the third quarter. They sacked Jared Goff five times, who didn't have a bad game, at least statistically. Detroit just ran the ball 14 times for 84 yards and one touchdown. Lamar Jackson was stellar, 21-27. of 27. 357 yards, three touchdowns. As a team, the Ravens ran it 27 times for 146 yards and two touchdowns. In the last game, then we'll talk over all the five. Chiefs beat the Chargers 31-17. Chiefs, 125 more yards of total offense, nine more first downs than the Chargers. Mahomes, 32-42, of 42, 424 yards, four touchdowns and one interception. Justin Herbert, 17-30, of 30. 259 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. He was sacked five times. The Chiefs could not run the ball. The Chargers made them one-dimensional. 21 rushes for 68 yards. Still lose by 14. And the Chargers ran it 26 times for 139 yards and one touchdown. That's five yards per carry. So why did I pick these five games? There was a couple blowouts. The Ravens game. The Chiefs game really wasn't close. The Pats and Bills game wasn't sexy. The Bears blew out the Raiders. Both had backup quarterbacks. Why did I want to talk about these? We'll talk about the Raiders because of the whole undrafted rookie free agent quarterback situation. I'm not saying he's an improvement over Justin Fields. That was just interesting to me. The rest of the games were just to prove a point that the NFL is a week-by-week league. And any time that there are power rankings out or talking heads in the media saying, not even saying, declaring that this team is the best team in the NFL this week or the best team in the NFC, best team in the AFC, it doesn't matter. It is such a week-to-week league. Bills were AFC darlings for a while. They lost to um, the Jets week one with a non-functional Zach Jones. They lost to Jacksonville in London, then to New England in New England. They're four and three. How great do they look? Last week, Detroit might be the best team in the NFC. Everyone's pounding their chest, their defense, their line. Aiden Hutchinson, they could run the ball. Goff's playing well. What happens? They go to Baltimore, get blown out 38-6. to <clears throat> The Dolphins, you know, they, they put up 70. Then they went to Buffalo and got routed. Then they went to Philadelphia and lost. Now, granted, they were down through offensive linemen. There were injuries, but they only scored one offensive touchdown. You expect more even with injuries. How about the Cowboys, right? For the first month, they look like world beaters. Go to San Francisco, get annihilated. Then the Niners are the best team in the league after annihilating Dallas. They go to Cleveland, they get beaten. 
missing a field goal at the end. So I guess now it's Philadelphia, right? Because Philadelphia is six and one. We'll see what the Niners do tonight at Minnesota. They beat Miami in a battle of five and one teams. Meanwhile, the Eagles lost at the Jets and have not looked that impressive overall. It's a week-to-week league. None of this stuff really matters. These Some of these really good teams should be tracking for, you know, 10, 11, 12 wins or more. And when the, when the dust settles at the end of the regular season where we have a Super Bowl champ, we'll know who the best team in each conference was. But for now, you look like, you know, people that are making these predictions look like yo-yos because whoever their thought is today... Monday the 23rd is going to be different on Monday the 30th or the first week of November. This isn't college football where there's actual rankings. But, you know, are power rankings fun to look at and read? Yeah. People put too much stock in them. People's feelings get get hurt because their team is ranked too low. Or arguments because maybe someone's ranked too high. And that's the whole point of it, right? It's clickbait. It doesn't matter other than drumming up conversation. But what this just does show, it, you know, I was listening to the radio this morning about how there's actually not parity in the NFL and it's very top heavy, you know, maybe, but when you have a one in five Pats team that can knock off Buffalo, albeit on the last play of the game, that says parity Colts can play the Browns tough and the Browns can put up uh, or let up 456 yards of offense and 38 points. That feels like parity Lions losing by 32 to Baltimore. That feels like it. And I threw the Chargers in just because the Chargers are such a tease, man. They're not, they have talent. I know they're missing Mike Williams, but Joshua Palmer is the number two receiver is more than adequate. And Keenan Allen is playing really well. They got Austin Eckler back. They're just not performing. And however much of it's the head coach versus maybe the quarterback isn't as good as everybody says. The Chiefs are the best team in the league because they have the best quarterback in the league. And I'm going to get into this in the next podcast. We're going to be talking elite quarterbacks or yeah, elite quarterbacks, my tiered rankings for maybe the top 10 quarterbacks. And we're going to discuss why there's so much hyperbole overall, anytime media, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it may be, when we use the term elite. And I'll just leave you with this. Remember 10 or so years ago, maybe more when there was the argument, if Eli Manning was elite, the whole, you can't spell elite without E-L-I. If we're throwing the, ra- the word around, uh, the, the word elite around that much, then we need to find a new word because we're watering it down a lot, much like what's happening to the NFL Hall of Fame. You shouldn't be having very good players or even excellent players in the Hall of Fame. You should be having Hall of Fame caliber players in the Hall of Fame. We're going to go through quarterbacks next week and discuss uh, who I think the top 10 are and who are actually elite and who are not. But that concludes the 49ers Plus podcast for today. I want to thank you for listening, as always, for taking time out of your busy day to make us part of your listening routine. Um, This is actually, even though I was recording some of it on a Monday, this is releasing on Tuesday, October 24th. And given the fact that the Niners had a Monday night game at Minnesota, The next podcast will be dropping either Thursday or Friday, undecided yet, just based on uh, workload and, and, and family scheduling and things of that nature, but definitely before Saturday, and then we'll be back on our normal Monday, Thursday schedule thereafter. So uh, enjoy the baseball playoffs, the World Series, 
uh, hockey, NBA uh, exhibition, and the next slate of games. Uh, actually, <laughs> I, I take that back. We're going to be talking again on Thursday. I'm all sorts of out of off kilter. But regardless, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay safe. And we'll talk again in a couple days. Take care.